This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of flexor tendon injuries from the hand section on orthobullets.com. And just an FYI, this is the most tested topic from the hand category. Flexor tendon injuries are a traumatic condition classified by the zone of injury. Basic concepts in repair are similar for different zones, and the location of the laceration directly affects healing potential. As far as the epidemiology, the incidence is rare, however, is thought to occur in 4.83 per 100,000 people. The mechanism of injury commonly results from volar lacerations and may have concomitant neurovascular injury. Tendon healing occurs via two pathways, intrinsic and extrinsic. Intrinsic healing is produced by tenocytes within the tendon. Extrinsic healing is stimulated by surrounding synovial fluid and inflammatory cells, and this is the type of healing implicated in the formation of scarring and adhesions. Tendon healing occurs in three phases, inflammatory, fibroblastic, and remodeling. The inflammatory phase occurs over zero to five days. The histology shows cellular proliferation and there is no strength of the tendon in this phase. The fibroblastic phase occurs over days 5 through 28. The histology shows fibroblastic proliferation with disorganized collagen, and the strength of the tendon is increasing. And the remodeling phase occurs after 28 days. The histology shows linear collagen organization, and the strength of the tendon in the remodeling phase will tolerate controlled active motion. Now let's review the relevant anatomy for this topic, that is the muscles, camper chiasm, the pulley system, and the blood supply. So as far as the muscles, the important ones to talk about are the flexor digitorum profundus, or FDP, flexor digitorum superficialis, or FDS, flexor pollicis longus, or FPL, flexor carpi radialis, or FCR, and the flexor carpi ulnaris, or the FCU. The FDP functions as a flexor of the DIP joint. It assists with PIP and MCP flexion, shares a common muscle belly in the forearm, and it has a dual innervation. The index and long fingers are innervated by the AIN of the median nerve, and the ring and small fingers are innervated by the ulnar nerve. The FDS functions as a flexor of the PIP joint, and it assists with MCP flexion. Individual muscle bellies exist in the forearm. FDS to the small finger is absent in 25% of people, and remember that the FDS is innervated by the median nerve. The FPL is located within the carpal tunnel and is the most radial structure, and it's innervated by the AIN of the median nerve. The FCR is a primary wrist flexor. It inserts on the base of the second metacarpal. It's the closest flexor tendon to the median nerve, and so you guessed it, it's innervated by the median nerve. And finally, the FCU is another primary wrist flexor, and it inserts on the pisiform, hook of the hamate, and the base of the fifth metacarpal and it's innervated by the ulnar nerve. The camper chiasm is located at the level of the proximal phalanx where the FDP splits into the FDS. That split is what's referred to as the camper chiasm. Now let's talk about the pulley system. Digits one through four contain five annular pulleys, that is A1 to A5, and three cruciate pulleys, that is C1 to C3. The five annular pulleys are thicker and stiffer than the cruciate pulleys. A2 and A4 arise from the periosteum and are the most important pulleys to prevent flexor tendon bowstringing. A1, A3, and A5 arise from the volar plate. 
The cruciate pulleys, that is C1 to C3, are collapsible and flexible, and they allow the annular pulleys to approximate each other during digital flexion. The thumb is set up a little different and contains two annular pulleys and one interposed oblique pulley, which is the most important pulley to prevent flexor tendon bowstringing in the thumb. As far as the blood supply, two sources exist, diffusion through the synovial sheaths and direct vascular perfusion. Diffusion through synovial sheaths occur when flexor tendons are located within a sheath and it's the more important source distal to the MCP joint. Direct vascular perfusion nourishes flexor tendons located outside of synovial sheets and is supplied by the vincular system, osseous bony insertions, reflected vessels from the tendon sheath, and longitudinal vessels from the palm. Moving on to classification, the flexor tendons are classified into five zones, and the thumb is a separate zone. Zone 1 is distal to the FDS, and a jersey finger refers to an avulsion injury of the FDP from the insertion at the base of the distal phalanx. Zone 2 is defined as the FDS insertion to the distal palmar crease slash proximal A1 pulley. This zone is unique in that the FDP and FDS are in the same tendon sheath and both can be injured within the flexor retinaculum, and the tendons can retract if the vincula are disrupted. And as far as treatment of these injuries, it typically involves direct repair of both tendons followed by early range of motion. This zone historically had very poor results, but it has improved due to advances in post-operative motion protocols. Zone 3 is defined as the palm, or more specifically, the A1 pulley, to the distal aspect of the carpal ligament. Injuries in zone 3 are often associated with neurovascular injury, which carries a worse prognosis. The treatment for zone 3 injuries is direct tendon repair. Good results from direct repair can be expected due to absence of the reticular structures if there is no neurovascular injury. Zone 3 injuries may require an A1 pulley release to avoid impingement of the repaired tendon on the pulley. Zone 4 is defined as the carpal tunnel, and injuries here are often complicated by postoperative adhesions due to close quarters and the synovial sheath of the carpal tunnel. Treatment of zone 4 flexor tendon injuries will also involve direct tendon repair. The transverse carpal ligament should be repaired in a lengthened fashion if tendon bowstringing is present. Zone 5 is defined as the carpal tunnel to the forearm. Injuries here are often associated with neurovascular injury, which carries a worse prognosis. Treatment of zone 5 injuries is also a direct tendon repair. Finally, the thumb is divided up into three zones, T1, T2, and T3, and flexor tendon injuries of the thumb will have outcomes different than the fingers. Early motion protocols do not improve long-term results, and there is a higher re-rupture rate than flexor tendon repair in the fingers. And as far as treatment, direct end-to-end repair of the FPL is advocated. Try to avoid zone 3 to avoid injury to the recurrent motor branch of the median nerve. And remember, the oblique pulley is more important than the A1 pulley. However, both may be incised if necessary. Attempt to leave one pulley intact to prevent bowstringing. As far as how patients with flexor tendon injuries present, symptoms usually include loss of active flexion strength or motion of the involved digit or digits. Physical exam will typically focus on inspection and motion. On inspection, you should observe the resting posture of the hand and assess the digital cascade. Evidence of malalignment or malrotation may indicate an underlying fracture. You should also assess skin integrity to help localize potential sites of tendon injury and you should also look for evidence of traumatic arthrotomy. As far as motion, passive wrist flexion and extension allows for assessment of the tenodesis effect. 
normally wrist extension, causes passive flexion of the digits at the MCP, PIP, and DIP joints. Maintenance of extension at the PIP or DIP joints with wrist extension indicates flexor tendon discontinuity. An active PIP and DIP flexion is tested in isolation for each digit. Neurovascular exam will be important given the close proximity of flexor tendons to the digital neurovascular bundles. Imaging may involve radiographs if you're looking for an associated fracture, and in some cases ultrasound can be used to assess suspected lacerations. Treatment of flexor tendon injuries can be either operative or non-operative. Non-operative management involves wound care and early range of motion for partial lacerations where less than 60% of the tendon width is involved. And as far as outcomes, this may be associated with gap formation or triggering. Operative options include flexor tendon repair and controlled mobilization, flexor tendon reconstruction and intensive postoperative rehabilitation, and FDS transfer to the thumb. Flexor tendon repair and controlled mobilization is indicated for lacerations that are greater than 60% of the tendon width. Flexor tendon reconstruction and intensive postoperative rehabilitation is indicated for failed primary repair and chronic untreated injuries. FDS transfer to the thumb is a single-stage procedure that is indicated for chronic FPL rupture. Now let's go over some of the techniques in more detail. Flexor tendon repair is indicated for a tendon that is greater than 75% lacerated or greater than or equal to 50 to 60% laceration with triggering. And in this case, epitendinous suture at the laceration site is sufficient and there is no benefit of adding a core suture. As far as some fundamentals of repair, there should be easy placement of sutures in the tendon, make sure to secure suture knots, there should be a smooth juncture of the tendon ends, there should be minimal gapping at the repair site as well as minimal interference with tendon vascularity, and there should be sufficient strength throughout healing to permit application of early motion stress to the tendon. As far as timing of repair, perform repair within three weeks of injury. However, two weeks is ideal. Delayed treatment leads to difficulty due to tendon retraction. As far as the approach, incisions should always cross flexion creases transversely or obliquely to avoid contractures. Incisions should never be longitudinal, and remember that meticulous atraumatic tendon handling minimizes adhesions. As far as the technique, remember that the number of suture strands that cross the repair site is more important than the number of grasping loops. There is a linear relationship between the strength of repair and the number of sutures crossing the repair. Four to six strands provides adequate strength for early active motion. High caliber suture material increases strength and stiffness and decreases gap formation. Locking loops decrease gap formation. Ideal suture purchase is 10 millimeters from the cut edge and core sutures placed dorsally are stronger. A circumferential epitendinous suture improves tendon gliding by reducing the cross-sectional area. It improves the strength of the repair by adding 20% to the tensile strength. It also allows for less gap formation, which is the first step in repair failure. A simple running suture is recommended as it produces less gliding resistance than other techniques. A sheath repair theoretically improves tendon nutrition through the synovial pathway. However, this is controversial as clinical studies show no difference with or without sheath repair. Most surgeons will repair it if it's easy to do so. 
Pulley management has been historically believed to be critical to preserve A2 and A4 pulleys in digits and the oblique pulley in the thumb. However, recent biomechanical studies have shown that 25% of A2 and 100% of A4 can be incised with little resulting functional deficit. With respect to FDS repair in zone 2 injuries, repair of one slip alone improves gliding compared to repair of both slips. As far as outcomes for flexor tendon repair, the important things to discuss are repair failure and adhesion formation. With respect to repair failure, tendon repairs are weakest between postoperative day 6 and 12. The repair usually fails at the suture knots, and repair side gaps of greater than 3 millimeters are associated with an increased risk of repair failure. With respect to adhesion formation, there is an increased risk with zone 2 injuries. Now let's move on to talk a bit about wide-awake flexor tendon repair. Anesthesia is performed under tumescent local anesthesia using lidocaine with epinephrine. As far as the dosing, usually epinephrine 1 to 100,000 and 7 milligrams per kilogram of lidocaine. From 1 to 400,000 to 1 to 1,000 is considered safe. If less than 50 cc's is needed, 1% lidocaine with 1 to 100,000 epinephrine for a 70 kilogram person is used. If 50 to 100 cc's is needed, dilute with saline in a 50-50 ratio to get 0.5% lidocaine and 1 to 200,000 epinephrine. If 100 to 200 cc's is needed for large fields like a tendon transfer or a spaghetti wrist, dilute with 150 cc's of saline to get 0.25% lidocaine and 1 to 400,000 epinephrine. For longer surgery that is greater than 2 hours, add 10 cc's of 0.5% bupivacaine with 1 to 200,000 epinephrine. Location of the repair is important to be aware of. Proximal and middle phalanges use 2 mils, the distal phalanx uses 1 mil, and the palm uses 10 to 15 mil. Typically, no tourniquet or sedation is used with wide-awake flexor tendon repair. The four advantages of this option include 1. It allows intraoperative assessment for repair gaps by getting an awake patient to actively flex the digit. 2. It reduces the need for post-op tenolysis by allowing intraoperative assessment of whether the repair will fit through the pulleys, and this allows on-the-spot debulking of branched repairs and allows for division of the A4 pulley and venting, that is partial division, of A2 pulleys. 3. It allows repair of tendons inside tendon sheaths as patients can demonstrate that the inside of the sheath has not been inadvertently caught. And 4. It facilitates post-op early active motion. You will basically immobilize for only 3 days and begin active mid-range motion after day 3. That is form a partial fist with 45 degrees of flexion at the MP, PIP, and DIP joints or the half a fist 45-45-45 regime. Let's move on to talk about flexor tendon reconstruction, and requirements include supple skin, a sensate digit, adequate vascularity, and full passive range of motion of adjacent joints. Single-stage procedures are only performed if the flexor sheath is pristine and the digit has full range of motion. Two-stage procedures are more common, and the two major ones are the Hunter-Salisbury and the Paniva-Holovich procedures. In the Hunter-Salisbury procedure, stage 1 involves a silicone rod being placed to create a favorable tendon bed. Then stage 2, 3 to 4 months later, involves the silicone rod being retrieved and a tendon graft is placed through the mesothelium-lined pseudo-sheath and a pulver-taft weave is done proximally and an end-to-end -end tenorophy is done distally. 
In the Paneva-Holovich procedure, stage 1 involves a silicone rod being placed in the flexor sheath, pulleys are reconstructed as needed, and a loop between the proximal stumps of the FDS and FDP is created in the palm. In stage 2, the silicone rod is retrieved, the FDS is cut proximally and reflected distally through the pseudosheath and either attached directly to the FDP stump or secured with a button. The advantages of the Paneva-Holovich procedure are that the FDS graft size is known at the time of silicone rod selection, so there is less graft diameter-rod diameter mismatch. The next advantage is that the FDS graft is intrasynovial, so there are fewer adhesions than in extrasynovial grafts. And this procedure relies on only one tenorophy site, that is distal or proximal, to heal at any one time, versus the hunter technique where two tenorophy sites are healing simultaneously. The major disadvantage of the Paneva-Holovich procedure is that graft tensioning is done at the distal end during stage 2, while the proximal end has already healed after stage 1. As far as graft selection for flexor tendon reconstruction, the palmaris longus is the most common, but it's absent in 15% of the population. The plantaris is indicated if a longer graft is needed, but this is also absent in 19% of people. Other graft choices include the extensor digitorum longus to the second through fourth toes, extensor indices proprius, flexor digitorum longus to the second toe, and the FDS. With respect to pulley reconstruction, one pulley should be reconstructed proximal and distal to each joint. Pulley reconstruction should occur first if a tendon graft is being used, and methods used for this include the belt loop method and the FDS tail method. As far as outcomes for flexor tendon reconstruction, tenolysis is required more than 50% of the time. Speaking of tenolysis, indications for tenolysis include localized tendon adhesions with minimal to no joint contracture and full passive digital motion, and tenolysis may be required if a discrepancy between active and passive motion exists after therapy. As far as timing of a tenolysis procedure, wait for soft tissue stabilization that is greater than 3 months and until you have full passive motion of all the joints. You have to make sure of careful technique to preserve A2 and A4 pulleys, and postoperative care will involve extensive therapy. Now let's talk about postoperative rehabilitation. Postoperative controlled mobilization has been the major reason for improved results with tendon repair, especially in zone 2, as it leads to improved tendon healing biology and limits restrictive adhesions, and it also leads to increased tendon excursion. Post-op protocols usually involve immobilization, early passive motion, and early active motion. Immobilization is indicated for children and non-compliant patients. Casts or splints are applied with the wrist and MCP joints positioned in flexion and the IP joints in extension. Early passive motion has three major protocols, the Duran protocol, the Kleinert protocol, and the Mayo synergistic protocol. The Duran protocol is defined by low force and low excursion, and it's basically described by active finger extension with patient-assisted passive finger flexion and a static splint. The Kleinert protocol is also defined by low force and low excursion, and is basically described as active finger extension with dynamic splint-assisted passive finger flexion. The Mayo Synergistic Splint Protocol is a low-force and high-tendon excursion protocol that adds active wrist motion, which increases flexor tendon excursion the most. Early active motion is basically described as moderate force and potentially high excursion. It involves dorsal blocking splints limiting wrist extension, and patients will perform place-and-hold exercises with the digits.
Lastly, let's talk about complications. The major ones are tendon adhesions, re-rupture, and joint contracture. Tendon adhesions are the most common complication following flexor tendon repair, and as we mentioned, there is a higher risk with zone 2 injuries. Treatment is usually physical therapy and tenolysis, which is performed 4-6 to six months after tendon repair if there is significant loss of excursion. Re-rupture is another complication, and there is a 15-25% to 25% re-rupture rate. As far as treatment, if less than 1 centimeter of scar is present, resect the scar and perform primary repair. If greater than 1 centimeter of scar is present, then you perform a tendon graft. If the sheath is intact and allows passage of a pediatric urethral catheter or vascular dilator, perform primary tendon grafting. And if the sheath is collapsed, place a hunter rod and perform staged grafting. Finally, joint contracture rates can be as high as 17%. Other possible complications may include swan neck deformity, which is characterized by hyperextension of the PIP and flexion of the DIP. Trigger finger is another possible complication. Lumbrical plus finger, which is characterized by paradoxical extension of the IP joints while attempting to flex the fingers. And the quadriga effect, which is characterized by an active flexion lag in fingers adjacent to a digit with a previously injured or repaired flexor digitorum profundus tendon. That's all for this review about flexor tendon injuries. Hopefully that was helpful. Look out for questions related to this topic on this weekend's question session, and hopefully this episode will have prepared you for that review. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.